you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as we continue on in our journey through this powerful gospel of God epistle, the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking today at verses 9 to 12. I want you to notice as we kind of read this, how many times the word blessing or blessed shows up. It shows up there in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing. Shows up in verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing? It's the word makarios, which is an interesting word. It's a word that means you are happy because you're in a right relationship with God. You're happy. And this particular word contains an article in verse 6 and verse 9, the blessing. So having your state in such a condition that your ungodly lawless deeds are forgiven and your sins are gone and God will never take them into account against you, now there's a blessing. There's the blessing, a blessing of no condemnation. Now, in that context of speaking about that blessing, we read in verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That's an interesting passage of scripture. May God add his blessing to the reading of it and to the exposition of it later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our father, we bow before thee today to thank you for your greatness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for your sovereignty that we've seen displayed in your creation just this week. That moon was spectacular all week. The 70-degree weather that we had a couple of days ago, and now it's frigid and snowing, all testify to the fact you're a sovereign God. You're in charge of all creation at all times. Lord, you are a God who knows we're living in dark times, dark days. And I pray that you would grant us wisdom to walk in life and reflect your light. We know that Jesus taught that if we were of the world, the world would love us. And he taught that the world hates us and hates you because we're not of this world. But I pray that you would allow us to continue to be a light to this world. Keep our minds sound. Keep us alert. Keep us sensitive to the Spirit of God. I pray that we would govern ourselves wisely as godly men and godly women. I pray that you would allow us to understand that we're living in a time that you control. And even though we see that God mockers are seemingly escalating, truth setters are basically those that are not running things. We're being run by godless people that aren't even interested in truth or reality. We turn to thee and ask thee for thy help. 
We're reminded of Elijah, who had godless Baal worshipers fill up the altar with water. Lord, evil mockers are filling up this country, and godless thinking is dominating. And when they got it all filled up, you stepped in, and you took it down. That's what we pray you do. We pray, Lord, that this country that's being filled up with godless thinking and godless things that are being voted in, godless actions, we pray you put an end to it. And as long as your family is here, Lord, we pray you show yourself strong and protect your family. Watch over your family. Bring down those evil things. We turn to you. You're our only hope. You're our only help. We turn to you and ask that you would do that. You know, Lord, as you've said in your word, when righteousness reigns, the people rejoice. Well, we're not rejoicing. So we pray that you would turn things around and let righteousness reign. In Jesus' name, amen. A while back, it was a Monday morning, Mary and I got up, decided to go to breakfast at a nice restaurant. We had a great breakfast, and as our waitress was walking by, I said, we're ready for the check. She said, your bill's been paid. She said, you see that couple over there? They paid your bill. Now, there was a couple who recognized us. We didn't recognize them. They paid our bill. They don't go to this church. We were not looking for that to happen. We weren't expecting that to happen, but they picked up the whole tab, including the tip. Well, we walked over to the couple, not even knowing who they were, and said, well, thank you so much. They said, we're happy to do it. We got in our car, we bowed our head, we thanked God, we asked God to bless the couple. We didn't even know them. Now, suppose for a moment, I would have started to argue with the waitress and say, I want to pay my own bill. The waitress would have said, well, your bill's completely paid and you owe nothing. Suppose I would have said, well, they have no right to pay our bill. I'm not going to say thank you for that. In fact, I'm going to go over to that couple and I'm going to say, look, I don't think you should. I'm going to take a glass of water here and I'm going to pour it on my head to help pay for this. I'll kind of baptize myself to help make payment. Any person in their right mind would say, well, you must be a proud, arrogant jerk. And you'd be right. But here's one for you. God the Father comes up with a grace system that will pay the full price for our sin. Jesus Christ willingly goes to Calvary, pays the bill. That cross is the only place where God will accept payment for the full price of our sin. Our sin debt was huge. We committed ungodly sins, lawless sins, sins plural. It was huge. And Jesus Christ allowed himself to be nailed to that cross and he shed his blood. He died to pay the total debt for our salvation. And instead of people saying, Thank you, God. What can we say except thank you, God? The vast majority of people want to argue the point. Rather than accept Jesus Christ, most would rather rely upon themselves. Most would rather try to earn it. Most would like to come up with a way they could merit this. Most really think 
They're good. They're better than most. They aren't a bad sinner, and they would much rather try to pay their own bill by their own works rather than rely upon Jesus Christ, who gives justification, and rather than rely on him and simply say thank you, they refuse to do it. Romans 4 is a powerful enemy of any person who believes he may be saved by his good works, even religious works, even religious works. The key word that destroys the work system in this chapter is that word logizomai, which is repeated 11 times in the chapter. It's the word that's translated into English by the words credit, reckoned, or counted. I want you to notice that righteousness is a credited matter. It's a matter that is judicially imputed to you. That's how you get this righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't earn that. None of us can measure up to the standards of righteousness that would be the righteousness of the Son of God. So it has to be credited to us. And I want you to notice, as we pointed out in the scripture reading, this calculated righteousness is a blessing. I mean, this is the best blessing that you can ever have in your life. To actually have God has calculated you as righteous and gives you the righteousness of his son. What a blessing. And we're talking here about something that legally is done in the court of God. We're talking about God as holy judge and he legally credits you as being righteous. He declares you as being righteous. What this means to the gospel and our salvation is that the righteousness that saves us from our sin is a righteousness God has to judicially, legally credit and calculate to our account. And this crediting or calculating is something God must do. And God says, the only way I'll do this is faith in my son. That's it. In fact, he brought out in chapter 4, verse 5, that it's a crediting that goes to ungodly people by faith, by faith, not works. No works in this. You don't have to promise to be good. You don't have to promise to try hard. You don't have to promise to be religious. You do have to believe. You have to believe totally and only in Jesus Christ. And somehow, in this twisted world of religion, in this twisted world of religious rites and man-made traditions and religious ordinances, this critical fact has been muddied. Most people would rather depend upon religion or rituals to resolve their sin problem. And one of the best ways to illustrate that in our time is the matter of water baptism. Many people truly believe it's our physical water baptism that really resolves the sin issue. Do you honestly think you can be made right with a holy God by water baptism? Do you, I mean, do you believe that? There are people who do. There are people who totally depend upon water baptism, and they actually argue about this very fact. They argue about all kinds of things about water baptism. They argue about the way you'd be baptized. Some say you have to be immersed to be right with God. Some give in to a fusion. You have to be sprinkled. Some take the position of aspersion. You have to have water poured on you. That's the only way to be right with God. Then they argue about the place you have to be baptized. 
Some say you have to be baptized in a public lake or river. That's where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Others say, no, no, it's got to be a private place like the Ethiopian eunuch Paul and the Philippian jailer. And then others say, no, no, it's got to be the public church baptistry. Then others argue about the purpose of the baptism. One religion says you've got to be baptized for dead people. Another person says, well, when we're baptized, it really means we follow Jesus. And another person says, when we're baptized, we are really identifying ourselves with the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're really doing by this is we're saying we were dead, we're buried with Christ, we're raised up. It means we're joining the church, and then some go so far as to say it really is saying we're saved. I mean, this is really part of salvation. We're baptized in water. Then there's arguments about when somebody should be baptized. Some say, well, you should be baptized just immediately after you're saved. I mean, that's what the Philippian jailer did. Someone else says, no, 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 it should be years after you're saved. Like that baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was 30 years old before he was baptized. And then others say, you really should be baptized before you're saved, like a little baby or an infant. Then others say you should be baptized as part of the process of making some statement of faith around age 12. And then they argue about the number of times you should be baptized. Baptized only once. No, no, you can go into the water once, but you need to go in the water at least three times. And then someone says, no, no, you got to be baptized every time you join a church. The sad reality of this is that many people in this world truly believe, truly believe that water baptism is the key to them being right with God. They believe that. And people rely on that religious ritual and somehow they've muddied the waters and they really think that takes care of the sin debt. But in all reality, if one thinks their water baptism saves them, they really think we can pay our own sin debt. That's not only dangerous, that's heresy. That will bring one to condemnation, and that's what's stated here in the book of Romans. Now the issue connecting religious rights to salvation is not new to water baptism arguments. During Paul's day, he faced the same kind of argumentation, the same kind of thinking. The specific religious rite or ritual that he faced was not so much water baptism, it was circumcision. When Paul wrote Romans, the Jews were claiming that in order to be really right with God, you have to be physically circumcised. And Paul had run into this argument many times in many places. At the end of his first missionary journey, there were people in Antioch of Syria, there were people in Jerusalem who truly believed that they needed to be circumcised to have a right relationship with God. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he clearly says circumcision is part of the law, and he said if somebody thinks that they have to be circumcised, they become a debtor to the whole law. So Paul threw it in there, lumped it in there with the law, the Old Testament law. Circumcision was a major issue with Jews. It was bigger than baptism is to Baptists or Catholics. 
If one was an uncircumcised Jew, you were not even considered to be a Jew, even if you had Jewish parents. If one was an uncircumcised Gentile, you were not permitted entrance into the synagogue. Their thinking was, if you're not circumcised, you're not fit for God, you're not fit for man. Well, the question is, is that true? Is that the real grace gospel? Does one have to be circumcised to be right with God? Does a person have to be physically baptized in water to be really right with God? What if a person isn't circumcised? What if a person isn't baptized? Could they be saved? What if a person didn't raise their hand? What if a person didn't go forward in a church service as some public confession? What if a person didn't continually recite the Lord's Prayer? What if a person didn't go to a doctor or they decided to wear special clothes like religions teach people that they have to do? Could they really be right with God if they didn't do that stuff? Paul answers that here. What Paul says is being right with God comes by having the righteousness of God, which comes by judicial calculation that has never been by religious rites, rituals, it's always been by faith. Hear this text well. We'll take you straight through it here in a minute. There has never been, there will never be a religious rite or ritual that will make sinful people right in the sight of a holy God. No one will ever get to heaven by being circumcised. No one will ever get to heaven by being baptized in water. To get to heaven, there has to be a judicial declaration from God at the throne of God in which he declares the sinner righteous and he gives him the righteousness of his son. There has to be this calculation that takes place at the throne of God. The only way into heaven is by judicial calculation and that only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And in this text of scripture, Paul uses Abraham. As an example to prove that point, he uses Abraham as an example to prove he wasn't justified by the physical right of circumcision. He was justified by faith in Jesus Christ. His works couldn't save him, nor could the religious ritual of circumcision. Now, in this book of Romans, there are three ways to interpret circumcision, and the context will determine which way it's to be interpreted. First of all, circumcision may be interpreted symbolically, representing believer versus unbeliever. Secondly, circumcision may be interpreted nationally, representing Jew versus Gentile. And thirdly, it may be interpreted literally, physically, the literal medical procedure of removing a foreskin from the male, which will actually show up in this text. And in this context, Paul's referring to the literal, physical, religious rite of circumcision. His point in bringing this up is to prove that physical religious rites have nothing to do with saving a soul from hell. Physical religious rituals have nothing to do whatsoever with paying the sin debt. That was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this text of scripture, Paul answers three main questions. Question number one, when, when was Abraham circumcised? 
Notice verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now the central point Paul clearly makes here is Abraham was not circumcised before his calculation of justification of righteousness. He was circumcised after he was justified. He was circumcised after God had calculated him as righteous. It can't get any clearer than what's said there in verse 10. It was years after he was declared righteous that he went through circumcision. Paul was setting a theological trap for these religious Jews. See, the religious Jew wants to depend on religious stuff. They like to depend on their rituals and on their circumcision. And they certainly like to depend upon their pedigree as it related to Abraham. And his point was, was Abraham circumcised before or after he was judicially declared righteous by God? And in verse 9, he begins by asking the question, is this blessing that David talked about. This blessing, an amazing blessing. Here's an ungodly, law-breaking sinner. And God judicially declares him righteous to the point that the text says he doesn't even take his sin into account anymore. Is that blessing of that judicial calculation, was it a righteousness he got through circumcision or not? Well, Paul says, we say, And notice that. We say, we say, having righteousness credited to your account has always been my faith. And that's the way it was for Abraham. So was Abraham justified before or after he was circumcised? Since you put a lot of stock in religious rituals, I just ask you the question. Was Abraham justified before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Now, we don't know for sure how old Abraham was when this happened. We do know that when Hagar bore Ishmael, Abraham was 86 years old, which occurs sometime after he was declared righteous. He was declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6 that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That occurred in Genesis 15, 6. We could logically assume that that happened when he was somewhere around 85 years old. That's when God declared him righteous at about year 85. We learn from Genesis 17, 24 that Abraham was circumcised when he was 99. 99. So what that means From the birth of Ishmael until Abraham's circumcision, there's a minimum of 13 years have transpired. And since Abraham was declared righteous through faith before the birth of Ishmael, we conclude that Abraham's circumcision had nothing to do with his salvation and God's judicial calculation. That's exactly the point of the Apostle Paul. Abraham was never made right with God by being circumcised any more than a person is made right with God by being baptized today. To be right with God, you have to be calculated as righteous. You have to be credited with a righteousness that we don't have. And there's only one way to get that credited righteousness. That is by faith in Jesus Christ. It does not come by religious rituals. And Paul is straightening out the faulty theology and faulty thinking of people of his day, and perhaps you need some help in this area too. Perhaps you've been around people that have told you to be right with God, you've got to be confirmed. 
To be right with God, you've got to make this profession of faith. To be right with God, you've got to be baptized. Some would even go so far as to say to be right with God, you've got to be circumcised. No, you don't need any of that. What you need to be right with God is a calculated righteousness. A judicial calculated righteousness that is given to you the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this righteousness comes by faith, not by religious rituals. Which brings us to the second question, what was Abraham's circumcision? Verse 11 He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Well, a logical question comes. If Abraham's circumcision had nothing to do with his justification, if Abraham's circumcision had nothing to do with him being declared righteous by God or credited with the righteousness, then what was the purpose of it? And Paul uses two nouns that both begin with an English word that starts with the letter S. He said, first of all, circumcision was a sign. It was a distinguishing mark that sets one thing apart from another thing. And secondly, it was a seal. It was a seal. Now, a seal was used for a lot of things in the Old Testament that basically marked off the property of God. Well, how in the world are we sealed? What is the sign? Well, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 1 and let's just look at that for a second. Just flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to notice what we read in verse 13, Ephesians 1.13, in him, that is in Christ, by faith in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge for our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, we received at the moment we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ a seal. The seal was the Spirit of God. We received the Spirit of God. There's our seal. There's our sign. It's a sign of the promise that we're connected to God. We received him the moment we believed. In other words, the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, there's this judicial calculation that takes place, and God says, I seal it with my spirit. This is done in the heavenlies. We're not even aware this is going on when we believe in the Lord, but this is what is taking place. Now, the main discussion that is that which concerns Abraham's circumcision is found in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, it might be wise to go back to Genesis chapter 17 for a second, and let me just point out a few things about Abraham's circumcision. In Genesis 17, if you go back there, please, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 17. Here's what we read. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. This is talking about the Jewish nation. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
And every male among you who's eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This circumcision, we learn, accomplished at least five things. First of all, it was a covenant between God and Abraham. Secondly, it was a covenant between God and Abraham's descendants, the Jews, and also the non-Jews who had become part of the Jewish nation. Thirdly, it was a covenant that pertained to every male Jew. Fourthly, it was a covenant that involved the male reproductive organ. And we learn from Genesis 22 and Galatians that this was a covenant that was designed to bring a specific seed into the world. Now, if we take all of those things into consideration, we conclude that Abraham's circumcision was an identifying mark that would demonstrate that Abraham was in a covenant relationship with God and he believed that through this lineage of people would come the Messiah Savior. He would come through his line. This mark physically demonstrated that Jewish people would be the people through whom the Son of God would come. This was a covenant sign between Jewish people and God. No other nation in the world would give birth to the God, Savior, Messiah, King. It would be a Jewish person who would come into existence, who would be the very Son of God. Now that's what circumcision was. It was a sign of that. Abraham wasn't saved by circumcision. He was justified by faith years before circumcision. Circumcision just showed that he was in that covenant relationship with God. And really, at best, that's all water baptism can do. It just shows that you've already believed in the Lord and received the Spirit of God. And that's what a religious ritual is. A religious ritual is something that's done external that supposedly indicates something that is real. For example, in the communion service, we basically are saying we totally rely upon Jesus Christ to save us. We rely upon his body, his shed blood to give us a relationship with the Lord. When we eat the bread or drink the cup, we're basically saying, I personally have believed that. That's what that ritual is. Now, one question that comes up today is the question of whether or not you should have a male baby circumcised. And to that, we make three statements. There's no theological reason for it. No theological reason for it. In fact, to think that there's a theological reason minimizes the work of Jesus Christ and the grace gospel. As far as salvation is concerned, according to Galatians, circumcision means nothing, zero. I was in a doctrine class one time, and we were going through these very principles here, and we had a guy in our class who was looking at the text, and he just... He just yelled out to the whole class, man, I'm glad of that because I've never been circumcised, which we weren't looking for that information, actually. <laughs> but he was so excited, he wanted to share it with everyone. There's no theological reason for it. Secondly, there may be some medical reasons for it. You can discuss that with your doctor, with your pediatrician. You can decide that on your own, pertaining to your own children. And parents have a right and liberty to choose to have it done or not have it done. It's their decision. But there's absolutely no theological connection to anything connected to God with circumcision. 
Now the third question is, why was Abraham circumcised? Verse 11 says, for two reasons. First of all, to show the uncircumcised Gentile that he was calculated as righteous before circumcision. That's what verse 11 says. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, a faith, which he had well uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without circumcision. Without being circumcised, that righteousness must be credited to them. So he wanted to show the uncircumcised Gentile that he was calculated as righteous before circumcision. So anybody would realize, look, this religious ritual of circumcision doesn't mean anything in your relationship with God. Religious rituals mean nothing. It's a circumcised heart that we'll end this with this morning and we'll show you that means everything. In other words, this judicial calculation of God saying you're righteous has nothing to do with physical, ritual, religious stuff. And secondly, to show the circumcised Jew that he was calculated righteous before circumcision. Verse 12 says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Abraham says, look, I was circumcised for a couple of reasons. Number one, I show Gentiles that they can be right with God by judicial calculation, just like I was right with God by judicial calculation. And I also show Jews by virtue of the fact that I wasn't even uh, circumcised when I was judicially declared righteous by God, I show both groups of people that the only way you can be right with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. It has to be calculated to you. It has to be credited to you. It's accredited righteousness. You don't have it. You don't earn it. It has to be given to us by God, and it's given to us the moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, you can go to as many religious things and participate in all kinds of religious stuff that you want to participate in, but I'm going to tell you something that means zero as far as you go into heaven. Zero. Because there's only one way. There's only one way to have Almighty God, the holy, sovereign judge of the universe, actually credit you and me with a righteousness that will enable him to say, okay, you can live with me forever because I have made this judicial decree about you that I no longer remember your sins. Your sins are gone. They're all washed away. And there's only one way to get that. That is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. It's not about religious rites. It's not about rituals. It's not about circumcision. It's not about baptism. It's not about praying the sinner's prayer. It's not about catechism. It's not about confirmation. It's not about your religious law-keeping or your religious traditions. It's not about your denomination. None of that stuff will get almighty, holy God to declare sinners righteous. There's only one way. And there's only one person. That is Jesus Christ. He paid the full price. You know what you ought to do? Get alone with him and just say, Hey, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I don't deserve it. Lest you think that I'm misreading this, go over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And here's what we read beginning at verse 9 in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9, for in him that is in Christ... That pronoun him connects to Christ, which is in verse 8. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, 
you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and there's spirit baptisms that has nothing to do with water, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, what Paul is writing here is the thing that you need to be set free from your sin is you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need a circumcision that's done without hands. And that circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. And that circumcision is wrought by the Spirit of God. It doesn't come by works or law. In fact, he says he took that law, nailed it to the cross. Says it there in verse 14. All the ordinances, all the decrees, nailed to the cross. We're not under those new moon, Sabbath day, festival things. I mean, the truth of the matter is, most people of this world, they want to somehow lay claim to something they do to be right with this holy God. God said, I don't accept anything you do. I accept what my son did. And if you will believe on him, you will be saved. I will declare you, credit you with his righteousness, and your sins will be gone. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ, you cry out to him to save you from your sins and acknowledge you are believing in him only to save you from your sins. Our Heavenly Father, we realize we are up against, and Paul was up against, a religious world that all of these religions have their rituals and things that they're just polluting people's brains with ideas that this will make us right with God, that'll make us right with God. And then we go straight through a book like Romans that says it's not any of that. It's by the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross. And Lord, we just, I guess, want to take a moment this morning to just say thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.